I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. All right, welcome to episode 28 of the Fish Untamed Podcast. Today I got a chance to talk to someone who I've been wanting to get on here for a while now, and we finally made it work with our schedules uh, Mark Livesey is the founder of Treeline Pursuits, which is an online e-scouting course uh, designed for elk hunters. Um, but I've I've heard Mark on a couple of other podcasts, and I've been following along with him online for a while. And I've reached out to him to see if he had any experience e-scouting for fishing. And turns out he spends his entire summer fly fishing the Greater Yellowstone area. So I was super excited to hear that. And he was super generous and offered to come on and talk about. Uh, the way he goes about looking for fishing spots and using uh, the online resources he has to find better places to fish, assess fishing pressure, things like that. So um, we finally made it happen, sat down, and he shared a, a ton of useful information for anyone who likes to use maps or other digital tools to pre-plan a fishing trip. And he doesn't just give vague tips about um, like which programs he uses. He goes into uh, pretty extreme detail about how he sets up the programs with his preferences, uh, which programs do which things best and what they're not so great at, um, how he combines them, what he's looking for when he's when he's trying to assess a fishing spot, how to assess fishing pressure. Um, it's just all great stuff. Uh, some of the stuff he talks about is in in relation to the um, program he runs for for elk hunting, uh, but a lot of it's applicable to fishing as well because a lot of it's just how to set up the programs, how to assess terrain, things like that. Um, but we do also get into some fishing specific things that he's looking for when he's trying to assess whether a piece of water is worth going to check out. So I I just can't express how much information he shares in this episode. Uh, it's been one of my favorites so far. And I think uh, everyone will learn a lot just from the years he's spent working with these programs and, and fine-tuning them for his needs. So without further ado, here is my chat with Mark Livesey. All right, perfect. Um, do you just want to start by giving me a little bit about your history uh, in hunting or fishing? How'd you get your start? 
Um, sure. So I grew up in Missouri and uh, I started hunting archery first, probably when I was about 10. Killed my first deer when I was 10 with my bow. Um, it was a little bit of a junk show, but uh, <laughs> it, it got done. And I was hooked ever since. And I, I you know, whitetail hunted all those years. And then when I got to college and graduated and got my first job, I was working for a Missouri Lions Eye Research Foundation, which is a was basically a human tissue transplant bank, predominantly eye tissue, human eye tissue with corneas and, and things. So I have, you know, I worked in the medical field for 25 years. And while I worked there, my boss was a big whitetail hunter. And him and I decided one year we were just going to grab a, back in those days, remember, Katie, this was uh, 20, no, this was 32 years ago. There was no such thing as Google Earth or <laughs> any of this stuff. We grabbed some topo maps and a couple of National Force maps, drove to Colorado uh, in a minivan, I'm not kidding, in a two-wheel drive minivan, and hunted elk, and uh, <laughs> actually killed an elk my first year, and uh, it was a cow elk, and I was hooked on that ever since, and I've been hunting elk ever since. I've only missed a couple of years because of work-related issues, and I was doing a few triathlons, which I'll cover in a second. I had a few years I was racing pretty heavy, so I missed a few years, but out of the 32 years, I think I only missed one or two uh, and mo a lot of those years, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, I've made more than one trip out West. And then, um, time went on, um, just really loved elk hunting, really loved whitetail hunting. And then I got into, uh, the event production business and kind of how I got into the event production business was I started racing triathlons and met my, my second wife and, we got married and we just been, we started racing triathlons and we raced for, oh, 13 or 14 years. And in that time I was hunting still too, hunting elk and racing. And um, my wife and I, she's done five Ironmans and I've done, uh, well, I've done 11 Ironmans. And we both went to the world championship in 2002 in Hawaii and did the Hawaii Ironman in 2002. So um, we just had a great fun uh, career of racing triathlons and then um i you know i i was in the event business we produce triathlons so i own a company called ultramax sports and we produce triathlons and marathons and bike races all kinds of events across the country mostly centered in the midwest and um four years ago i decided to kind of relax from that and um we packed up and moved our family out west and we decided to move to a state that I'd never hunted elk in and we <laughs> moved to Missoula, Montana. And um, ever since then, I've been like a kid in a candy store. And uh, so the first year we got here in Montana, I started buying llamas, uh, pack llamas to hunt with. And now I started, I bought four right off the bat and now I've got 19. And um, I've got a bunch of six more babies on the way this year. So I'm breeding llamas, I'm renting llamas, and I'm using them to hunt myself. And then I also use them, we can talk about this a little bit more, is I use them to guide trips. I guide fly fishing trips in Yellowstone National Park um, deep in the backcountry with my llamas. We take fly fishermen in, in with llamas and spend four, five, six days fly fishing all over Yellowstone Park. 
And uh, so that's kind of the nutshell. I don't know if I've ever had somebody give such a rich introduction uh, in the first couple <laughs> minutes. I'm not sure what's the uh, the most impressive thing between the triathlons or the uh, you know coming out and killing an elk your first your first attempt. But um, did, well, did, the ni- did the 19 llamas include the four that just came in today? <laughs> no, the four that came today are from a friend of mine, Idaho Falls. They're going on a on a year long rental here. There's a ranch here in. Um, down in Hamilton, Missouri, that's going to use four of them on their ranch for the whole summer and the fall. And so those, I've got them here on my little, my little ranch. They're hanging out here for a month and then I'll deliver them for the, for their duty on uh, June 1st. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Um, I actually just got done talking with a guy who uh, uses goats to pack. Yeah. uh, yeah. Ever since then, I'm just like, I got to get some sort of pack animal. (laughs) Well, I, I'll be honest, I spent a lot of time on that. So when I moved out here, you know, I'm 54 years old, Katie. So I'm not old. I'm just saying I'm I'm getting there. And I mentioned to you before we started, I have five elk tags this year. And, you know, I, you know, I've done triathlons. I've been in pretty good shape a lot of my life. Uh, I'm not in triathlon shape that I used to be at the moment, but, you know, I'm working on it. <laughs> but um, the fact is, you know, there's a reality that sets in when you're 54 years old, there's only so many hundred pound trips you can take with your body at that age. And for me to hunt like I do, uh, I needed some, uh, I needed some partners. I think last year I spent over 65 days hunting, hunting, um, mule deer and elk. So that's a lot of days and the wear and tear on your body, you know, just not going to work out. And, uh, especially the way I like to hunt. And it lets me take in, you know, we could talk about this on the fishing side, but it helps me take in better gear. It helps me take in better food. It helps me um, stay in longer. Obviously, I can go in a lot further. I can do things by I spend a lot of time solo, about 50% of my time is solo. So I can do it solo with these llamas. And they're kind of like my buddies. And um, we roll into the mountains four, five, six, seven of those guys and me, and we hang out for, you know, a couple of weeks sometimes. And, um, it's just, it's pretty special. Yeah. I kind of feel like the pack animals might be used for pretty different things between hunting and fishing because hunting, I, I think the, you know, the majority of what you're using them for is to, to carry the meat back out, but usually not carrying that much out for fishing, even if you're keeping some, but like you said, it's a good way to take a lot more stuff in just to, stay a little bit more comfortable while you're out there. Yeah, exactly. So like fishing, for example, one of the, one of my favorite things to do uh, in, in Yellowstone is to pack flow tubes in, into these super remote lakes. And most of these lakes, well, not most, a lot of these lakes just don't get that kind of fishing pressure. You know, they just don't get very many people are packing float tubes into these places. And uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty serious trip. And uh, people just really love it. And uh, there's a lot of opportunities, whether you're doing that or you're river fishing, stream fishing, or a mixture of the two. So the llamas let us do that. And, uh, you know, multiple rods and all, all the things that, you know, and like I mentioned, just taking better food, you know, better sleeping arrangements. Um, you know, it just makes life a lot more bearable in the backcountry. You know, and Katie, most of the people that I talk to, especially fly fishermen, it's, you know, and I'm not saying older, younger, it doesn't really matter. The problem is 
it's not the walking or the hiking. They love that part. It's the carrying 60, 70 pounds, 10 miles in, 10 miles out. You know, whether or not you're, you know, you're not packing fish out, obviously, but um, either way, you're still carrying the load of your camp and your food, all the stuff. And so the llamas just allow to take all that pressure off so we can go in further, we can stay longer, and we can move around a lot easier. And we're able to fish places that you can't hardly, you know, you can do it with a backpack, but uh, it's not very, it's not real easy to do. For example, I'm going into the thoroughfare this year. I don't know if you're familiar. It's probably the most remote place of Yellow, in Yellowstone. And it's kind of on the southeast side of the Yellowstone Lake. It's a very remote, very remote. It's going to take us two or three days to get into our area. And, uh, but I don't know that we could do it without, without the stock. And, um, so I'm really excited for this trip. And, uh, some of these places just get virtually no fishing pressure. That's and, awesome. Uh, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty amazing back there. I've got a feeling. Yeah. I'm jealous of your ability to carry a belly boat. I, I can take a belly boat in, you know, a couple of miles. We do maybe a couple of trips like that every year, but it's hard to do that and carry a tent and everything. Uh, yeah, usually the belly gets, boat trips we're doing are just like a day trip because that takes up your whole backpack. That's right. You know, and then, well, and like I said, I mean, it, it's not that you can't do it, but there may be guys that maybe they've got a slight knee injury or girls when, uh, you know, whatever. And, or they want to take younger kids. We take a lot of families. I would say the, the majority of my trips that I, that I guide in Yellowstone are family trips. Really? That, you know, they, they've got some kids that are eight, nine. Well, we took a three-year-old. She, that three-year-old made it seven miles, 3,000 feet of elevation, no problem. Oh, geez. I know adults who don't and, do that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We've got a few llamas that you can ride, that the kids can ride. Oh, okay. Adult. Adults can't ride them. So we got that option as well. But most of the kids, you give them the lead on the llama and they forget they're even hiking. <laughs> Next thing they know, it's five miles where it camp, And they're like, well, that was fun. And instead of, oh, we only got one more mile to go. Only right. one more mile to go. <laughs> and, I, mean, I can't uh, say I'd be any different. Give me the, give me the llama <laughs> and I'll have a great time. The kids love it. And the llamas, they, they really respond to their younger the younger kids, it's almost like they, I don't know. It's kind of a weird uh, dynamic. They're, they're actually better with the kids than they are with adults. And uh, I don't know if they just feel comfortable with them. They respond better to them. And uh, anyway, it's quite a match. And it's really, it's really fun to see those kids on those trips um, handle those llamas all by themselves. And they just feel like, you know, it just gives them a power. It empowers those kids and they're just, I don't know. I've just, these kids are just, it's just, it's gotta be the experience of their lifetime. You can just see it on their faces. So anyway, I love doing it and I'm excited to get, maybe get this COVID stuff behind us so we can start getting back into the backcountry again. Oh, me too. What, what are your restrictions like up there right now? They're lifting them in Yellowstone in May. So just started here this week. They're lifting some. They're not too worried about the backcountry trips because we're pretty limited. You know, we're eight to ten people anyway, mm -hmm. uh, and we and being keeping distance is pretty easy. That and, and sanitation is is easy um, for us. What they're most concerned about, I think, is like the crowds at you know at Old Faithful, and they're trying to figure out ways sure. to those kinds of things. But as far as the guided trips and the backcountry trips and 
they already kind of have social distancing going on because I don't know if you've ever been in Yellowstone, but you have to get a permit to camp in Yellowstone. You can't just go down to Yellowstone, hike in the backcountry and camp. You have to camp in designated places and you have to get a permit. Mm-hmm. So they so they know how many people at each campground, where they're at, how much distance between them, when they're leaving, when they're coming out, all the details. So it's already kind of, if you want to call it, made to order for this situation. It's already works that way. So that part I don't think is going to be too bad. It's just mainly getting the administration back to work and, and all that kind of infrastructure stuff probably. Yeah, I think we're in the, I'm not sure when uh, we're supposed to open back up, but Rocky's closed too. Uh, but it's the same situation where I, to, to camp anywhere, you need a permit and they have designated backcountry sites, you know, in addition to the more established campsites, even in the backcountry, you have to stay in certain spots and they keep track of how many people are going in and how many are coming out. Um, but I'm not sure when, when Rocky's supposed to open back up. I haven't, I haven't really paid too much attention to it, but uh, I wonder if it's on the same schedule as Yellowstone. I don't know. You guys over there in Colorado, you guys are uh, pretty, you guys have got some stickler rules over there. So uh, um, you guys have been one of the, one of the toughest to get, get things back to going. So not, not the toughest, but definitely tough. Yeah. So, I heard Washington's pretty bad. Yeah. Washington, Michigan, there's some, there's some tough ones out there and you know, some places are worse than others and I'm not here to, I'm certainly not here to pass my advice onto it. I, all I know is that, I'm ready to get back to getting into the backcountry, catching some of those gigantic Yellowstone cutthroats, and um, <laughs> I'm really, uh, I'm really excited about that. Well, that's a perfect segue um, into into our e scouting talk because uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that too. But about the only thing we can do right now related to that is to to dream about it and look at look at pictures online and <laughs> scroll around maps i've been i spent a couple hours the other night just like looking at places and marking things down i'm sure you've been spending a lot of time doing the same yeah so yeah that's good let's jump into that there's probably you know i was thinking about that and we've been i mean we've only been trying to do this podcast work for a year um, <laughs> it seems like and i really appreciate your patience with me and uh it seemed like every time we got ready to get on the, something else crisis was happening right so, uh man it was like it was destined for us not to speak but we well we here got we it are together. here we are <laughs> we've, over, we've overcome so i'm sure there's a lot of um similarities between how i use e-scouting at least the tools and the techniques that you're you know you're especially particularly your fly fishermen um following would be you know, if they're not doing it, it would be incredibly beneficial to them. And uh, so maybe we can dive into some of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I do want some tips like specific to finding fishing spots, but also, you know, one of the things I'm most curious about is, uh, just like how you're using these tools. And and I've already picked up a lot of tips just from when I've heard you on hunting podcasts, uh, just talking like, um, I know you'll probably get into this, but just changing the, the, um, the amount of elevation that's shown, I'm not sure what the, what the, um, actual label is, but making the mountains look bigger than they are because, because by default they look smaller than they are. And just little tips like that, that when you've brought them up, I'm just like, Holy crap, how did I not know that that tool was an option? Um, so I'm I'm sure that's a lot of people probably need, uh, some help with just working the tools. I mean, everyone's played around with Google earth, but uh, most people haven't done more than just, you know, click and drag and scroll around. Yeah. Well, um, would it be good if I just maybe um, 
talk about Google Earth, particularly start with and just give like five or six tips that I can throw out there. And then maybe you can ask me more questions to expand on those. But I think setting up Google Earth and I talk about this in my e-scouting course. And um, if you've got listeners um, that are hunters and they're also fly fishermen, this course is going to be super valuable. Um, because not only will it help you, I think, find more elk and or mule deer or whatever you're hunting as far as an e-scouting tactics, but it will teach you the ins and outs of these tools, um, Google Earth, Onyx Maps, and Gaia GPS and Base uh, Base Map are the kind of the, the ones I cover in the course. And I think setting those up and using them in a very similar fashion to um, that I do in hunting applies, I mean, almost 100% to fishing. Um, even a couple of things that I teach in the course are actually better for fishing. And one of them I'll tell you specifically is better for fishing even than hunting. And uh, so, um, you know, if that sounds good, we could jump into that. Yeah, I, I'm definitely down to start with that. And I'd love to hear um, like all, all of the different programs you use and, and kind of how you set them up. Because I use Onyx and Google Earth, but I've heard of Gaia um, and it sounds like you use that as well. So I'd love to hear about all of them. Well, let's start, a, let's start with Google Earth Pro. So if you download Google Earth Pro, it's free now in case you haven't been using it. I mean, most of your people probably understand it and have been using it. It used to be $399. When I started elk hunting, I don't want to date myself, Katie, but when I started elk hunting, when Google Earth came out, I paid the $399 for this program. And this oh, man, was back, that's got to hurt now. And, oh, yeah. Not only that, this was back in the 90s. Um, well, actually, it was early 2000s, I guess. But the point is, that was a lot of money back then. And nowadays, people are complaining about the $29 or whatever on XBAT. It's nothing. Um just pay the money and enjoy the, the tool. But anyway, Google Earth Pro, make sure you get the current version and download the application. I, you know, for most things that I do, I'll be honest with you, I do recommend Google Earth Pro versus the web-based version of Google Earth. It's not that you can't use the web-based, it works just fine, but I do think there's some features and there's more capabilities and the flexibility is better in the program and it's free anyway. So I definitely would download the pro version. And then there's some things that you're going to want to do right off the bat. In my opinion, Google Earth Pro by itself is not very usable because it's aerial photo only, as everyone probably knows already. So you're going to be able to look at aerial photos and move around and you'll be able to see some placeholders. I mean, there's some overlays that shows, you know, borders and labels and places um, down in the layers tab down at the bottom of the of the pane that's on the left hand side of the screen. But for the most part, that's about it. So one of the first things I want to tell your listeners to do if they don't if they don't do this already or they don't know about this. And maybe you've picked this up on the podcast already, but you want to download this this KLM file called Earth Point Topo. And maybe we can Google that and get you the actual link to put in your show notes. But Earth Point Topo is a KML file that gives all of the USGS quadrangle topographic maps for the entire, uh, for North America. And when you download that and you, you put that file, you basically import it into your My Places 
folder in Google Earth, which is kind of your data. And, and then as soon as you get that in, it's like, it's like gold. You're able to switch from topographic view to aerial photo view and back. You can see the roads, you can see the contour lines, you can see all the, you know, the placeholders, you can see the trails, all of it. And what you can do, you can also turn off the opacity or you can change the transparency of that earth point topo so you can have kind of what they call a hybrid environment. So you can see the contour lines mixed in with the aerial photos. So this is really key with hunting, but this is also very key for fishing. So having that topographic map overlay along with your aerial photo and be able to turn it on and off with just basically the click of a checkbox is, um, is just incredible. And so if you're not doing that, that's the first thing I would do is download that KML file, install it in your Google Earth, and that gives you the ability to look at both topographic view and aerial photo view. A quick question for you, because I do use uh, EarthPoint Topo, um, but sometimes I find it to be a little bit overwhelming when I have it on the 3D imagery. Do you keep Do you keep Google Earth as 3D when you're looking at the Topo, or do you turn Google Earth into like a 2D and get rid of that relief so you can view it as like a flat Topo map? Yeah. So what? That, um, great question. So one of the things. Again, I don't want to point people to my course too much, but I go over oh, some very, I go over some very important keystrokes in Google Earth, and one of them, I don't know if you do this a lot, but it's the reset keystroke. It's the R and the U. If you just hit the R, what that does, it resets the tilt and everything to zero, and it orients the map to north. Because when you start tilting the topographic, I mean, sorry, when you start tilting the aerial photo view and then you turn on your topographic view it looks all wonky is that what you're talking about yeah it's just kind of hard to view a topo map while it's on 3d (laughs) exactly so you can leave it in 3d you just got to reset the tilt right right you can't you got to be looking you got to be looking down at a 90 degree angle and so if you just and again instead of instead of going to basically if you're looking at your google earth menu you're going to go to view you're going to go down to reset and you're going to say reset the tilt and compass, but it doesn't give you the keystroke in the program. I don't know why it doesn't have that, but the keystrokes are R and U. I believe okay. if I'm correct, I mean, you may have to test this out, but R I believe does both and U only resets the tilt. So, but you can play around with it, but it's those two keystrokes, R and U. So, you know, I try to, when I'm doing most of my work, when I'm looking at rivers and I'm looking at bends in the river, or I'm trying to look at, maybe there's to be some, I'm looking for maybe uh, some soft water, or I'm looking for spots that I want to hike to from the road. I won't use the tilt very often when I'm trying to switch back and forth. I only get into the tilts when I'm trying to look at like up a canyon view or I'm trying to do a 360 view of some, you know, what I can see from a particular spot maybe. So that's when I use the tilt and the angle more. But if you keep that tilt reset to reset and you keep your compass oriented to north, it doesn't matter too much about the compass, but then your topo, that earth point will work amazing. 
Okay, yeah, I'll have to try those keystrokes. I've, yeah. uh, I, I, I don't know if you were going to um, cover this, but one thing I found the other day was that there's a setting you can change in preferences, I think, that uh, prevents it from auto-tilting, because that was one of my big complaints about right. Google Earth. Is like you go to zoom in, and it like zooms you down as though you're gliding down onto the Earth, and you're no longer looking straight down on it. But there is a setting I think you can change that makes it so when you zoom in, it just zooms straight down as though you were looking at Google Maps. Right. Um, so that was, that was a big help for me, but I definitely will have to use these keystrokes when it tilts inadvertently. Yes, absolutely. Turn that, turn that auto tilt off. Um, I can't remember where that's at. Maybe I can figure it's, it's there's in Google earth, there's only five preference panes. So there's not a whole lot of settings. Um, but so one of the things you, we talked about briefly was you want to turn off this auto tilt and you, it would, you ought to set your exaggeration, your, I'm sorry, your elevation exaggeration to it's on the 3D view screen. You want to set it to 1.5. So one is more of a realistic number and 1.5 slightly exaggerates the terrain a little bit. And what it makes it, what it does is it helps you see terrain that's a little flatter. It helps you see the undulations a little better. If you're already in really steep country and um, you don't really need to do this as much, but if you're in a little more flatter area and you'd like to see more of the undulations and, and you're trying to judge the river, you know, bank steepness and things like that, you might want to set your edge your elevation exaggeration to 1.5, possibly even two and kind of play with that setting. And um, so that will help a lot. That will um, let you see the slopes with a little more exaggeration. Um and I hope that helps a little bit on that. Yeah, it also keeps you humble because the number of times I've looked at a mountain and been like, I'll just walk over that, you know, on my <laughs> yeah. way. And then you get there and you're like, oh, man, I cannot walk over that. But it looked like just a hill on, on the map. Um, well, so that's, that's, that, that happens in hunting, me. too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I use it to make sure that things actually look as bad as they're going to be. <laughs> okay, so I found it. It's in the fourth tab. It's in the navigation tab under the preference pane. And under the little navigation thing, it says, there's a little checkbox that says, do not automatically tilt while zooming. Okay, yep, that's the just, one. You just check that baby and then you're covered. And the settings are pretty straightforward, I've noticed. Like you said, there's only a couple panels and most of the things that they list are something that you can kind of understand just by reading what, what the label is. Right, that exaggeration sometimes throws people, they don't quite know what that is. So I'm glad we talked about that. Uh, and the... And that tilt that they sometimes they don't know that. And Google Earth by default comes with that not turned off. So when you install it, you know, it's going to automatically tilt as you zoom. Yeah, and like that's that what I'm oh, sorry, that's what messes up your that's what messes up your topo view a lot, too. Right. And that's why I've I've had trouble with the topo view before, because it's been, you know, I'll turn it on and the map is t slightly tilted. And then you can only see the, the lines that are on your side of the hill. Um, and it's not particularly useful. Um, right, but like exactly. you said, Google Google Earth is kind of uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, that it's kind of useless by itself. It took me a long time to get used to using Google Earth. I used to use Google Maps because because of that. It's it's just kind of an aerial photo. And a lot of times that's not that useful if you can't see things marked. Um so I, I like that you mentioned this. It's more of a blank slate that you can then deck out with whatever features you want um, versus uh, like an all-in-one tool from the start. You know, and it's funny. I tend to spend more time in Google Earth when I'm doing my 
both hunting and fishing scouting. Um, then I do Onyx maps or Gaia GPS. And the main reason is because I do like the capabilities of the tilt. I do like, do like how quick you can turn on and off that topo layer. Mm. And one of the biggest things is the resolution is better in most cases. The zoomed in maximum resolution is better in Google Earth than it is in the applications. When you're really trying to get the fine detail and you're trying to like look at, you know, maybe you're trying to look at rock placement in the river. Or you're trying to look and see, you know, you're trying to determine runs and riffles and runs and you're trying to evaluate that kind of stuff. You really, it's really hard to do unless you can get that maximum zoom capability. And I have noticed lately working on my class, they've got a lot of 2019 um, aerial images that are uploaded now. Oh, that's and good those, to know. And those 19 images are just spectacular. Um, you know, every, you know, every year and every, the, the imagery, the, the cameras, the, you know, the software that's, that's handling the imagery, just getting better and better. So the imagery is getting better all the time. And so these newer images are just outstanding. Yeah, I know you said that you've seen elk herds uh, like from oh. Google Earth. Have you have you gotten to spot any trout yet? <laughs> that's, I think that's the next level of, of aerial imagery that we need. As, as big as some of those trout get back <laughs> in the front and the back end of Slough Creek, um, I'm not surprised we can't see them. But no, <laughs> I have not I have not gotten that to that level yet. I don't think they're going to ever get to the point that they're going to let the common citizenry sure. look at that, that level. You'd be spying on your neighbors when they're sunbathing in the backyard. Right. We, we can hope, though. <laughs> <laughs> or hope that the fish get big enough that you can see them from the from space. <laughs> yeah, no, that hasn't happened yet. But I have seen, I do see a lot of my, when I'm scouting, it's funny you said that because when I'm scouting in Yellowstone, I see bison standing along the river all the time. Oh, really? When I'm doing Google Earth. So yeah. how, um, oh, so are, do you have any more uh, specific to Google Earth um, tricks? Yes, that you've I got, got okay. one more really great one. I don't know if you do this or not, but with hunting, I do this all the time. And with fishing, I do it as well. So what you want to do, and again, uh, you can look at the Google Earth help menu. I know this is a podcast. I know it's hard to kind of visually talk you through this, but you're going to use the path tool, which is up in the bar. You've got your waypoint tool, then you've got your polygon tool, and then you've got your path tool. Or you can click on the ruler. The best way to do it is just click on the ruler. Let me do it while I'm, so I can say exactly. Click on the ruler and then click on path, okay? And then that's going to let you trace a route. You can just click, 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 right? Mm -hmm. So what you're going to do, okay, is you're going to click all the way. Let's say we're scouting this river. And let's say we're going to look at maybe a two-mile or three-mile section of this river that we want to we go fish. Let's just say, for example, I just did this practice. So let's use an example. We were going to go camping on Rock Creek here in, in uh, by Missoula, Montana. It's a blue ribbon fishery. It's outstanding. So I used this path tool and I clicked all down the right down the middle of the river, all the way up the river for, let's say, two or three miles. And then um, I saved that path and call it Rock Creek. OK, then you're going to go back to Google Earth Pro and you're going to go to preferences and you're going to go to touring. Okay. 
and you're going to make sure your camera tilt angle is set to 60 degrees and you're going to set your camera range of about 1200 meters and you're going to set your speed to about 600 which is just a little bit past halfway and again you can play with these numbers um but that's the prior that's those are the ideal settings for me so 60 degree 60 degree tilt 1200 meters range and 600 slow i mean 600 is is far speed and you're going to say okay and then you're going to go to your path and you're going to click on your path and then right at the bottom of the places window pane there's an obscure little box on the right hand side that will say play tour and you play tour and what it will do is it will fly automatically to that line and it'll be 1200 feet up and you'll be looking 60 degrees forward and what it's amazing for fishing because you'll fly it's almost like you're flying right up the river and you're able to look at every bend every corner um the structure and you can adjust the speed and you can just fly up the river and take it and you can stop the tour at any point drop a waypoint and continue the tour and um but it's a really helpful tool to just fly up a river and get a look at how it looks from basically the middle of the river um looking upstream or downstream whichever direction you're flying from doesn't really matter but anyway, I don't know if you're doing that, but it's a great little tool. So I do the same technique for hunting. I will do a line throughout some drainages, up through some basins, maybe cross through a saddle, and maybe, you know, what visit some meadows. And then I'll just step back and I'll maximize my screen and I'll sit back and just watch it fly. And you'll be surprised at how much information you're just able to gather from setting back and watch it without having to mess with your mouse or anything. So I don't know if you do that, but it's a great tip. I think I've actually accidentally done that. Like I've, I've <laughs> like where I've clicked something and then suddenly it's flying me to a place and starting something. Right. I'm like, oh no, I didn't want to do this, but I had no idea what it was doing. Um, I just had clicked something. Uh, but that's an amazing tip. And that's that's not something I've heard of before. And I feel like not something that you get when you're just um, looking at some quick tips on Google Earth. So no, I'm, you know, I'm I've never, doing that. I've never seen I've never seen that tip mentioned, but it's an incredible one. So you know, obviously, if you double click on a point it will fly to that point mm -hmm. you know yep. that's obvious but the, if you do the path and you double click it it will fly to the path but it won't play the tour you have to hit that play tour um little button to ha have it fly the path now and is the, is this different ahead. from uh, like a, a regular line? I'm not in Google Earth right now because I don't want to um, overwhelm my computer too much. But I I like to trace um, rivers I've been to just to um, kind of have a a record of them and I'll make notes about them. Um, but are those lines that I'm drawing the same thing as a path, or is a path its no. own tool? It's it's so when you pull the best way to do it is the is the ruler. Click okay. the ruler icon. So when the ruler icon when you click that it comes up and gives you some options. You can do a line like what you mentioned, okay. but a line line won't give you the tour. That just gives you a point A to point B and it gives you a distance and that kind of stuff. Okay. But the path will allow you to click multiple times, you know, it set the path to go around curves and every, you can click close or you can click far. You know what I'm saying, right? And you just click until you're done 
And when you get done with the path and you hit save, and it will save multiple waypoints, every click that you made will be a different point along the path. And then when you play that tour from the path, it will fly along the path. I'm going to be flying all over the place tonight. <laughs> I can't wait to try this out. Yeah. So the key though, where most people get messed up is the set. There's a, the reason that they don't like it or it doesn't jump out at them is, and you know, is to revisit this again, is to set those preferences. Those are critical 60 degrees, 1200 and 600 to get a start. And then you can play with that. If you want to go a little lower, closer to the river, then drop your range down to 500. You'll get right on, you know. So so basically what it's simulating, as far as I know, I could be wrong, is it's 1,200 meters off the ground. So if you want to be closer to the river, then, uh, but there's, a, I will tell you, there is a diminishing state of return on some of this stuff. So you can just play with the numbers and get your, Get your optimum settings, and then you're good to go. All right, that's awesome. I'm gonna have to try that out. And uh, oh, good. I, that, that, I feel like that's uh, just a great way to, I don't know, feel like you're getting to know the river a little more than just looking at an aerial view. Well, you know, if you're trying to use Google Earth and you're trying to fly up or fly and just kind of move up the river, and you're trying to keep your tilt, you know, every time you move your boss, you're changing the tilt and you're, you're kind of getting wonky and you start all of a sudden you're tilting a little to the left and a little to the right. And it's just not very stable to do it by hand. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then a mountain pops into, in, in That's the way. Right. Yeah. And then you cross over the ridge and now, dang it, now you can't even see the river. Right. You flew um, somewhere like 200 miles away because you yeah. accidentally clicked and dragged a little bit. <laughs> and that's why the path is so great because you can just sit back and just let it do its thing and it won't get off track. So is this basically what you, I know we're maybe jumping a little bit ahead here into the actual specifics of looking for fishing spots. But I assume that if you if you spot a river that looks promising, that you're just kind of throwing one of these paths in and and That's just right. giving it a, a quick once over to see if it's maybe worth your time to, to look into a little more. Here, here's a, here's a here's a real here's a real life scenario that I do all the time. So let's say that we're going to drive to a spot that has a river access. And you, you're just going to go to a river access and you don't know if you really want to, you know, head down river or you want to head up river. What I'll do is I'll draw a path both directions. I'll fly it. I'll take a look at it. I'll mark waypoints. And then I'll see which direction has the most waypoints, meaning, meaning the, the, mo- the plate, which side has the most interesting spots. Oh, that's a good tip. And so then that may be my decider. That doesn't mean I won't fish both directions. It just means that, hey, I think I'm going to go upriver first because there's more things that jump out at me there than downriver. And uh, so you can also look at, you know, if you're flying, one of the other things, if you set your exaggeration to that 1.5, you're seeing how difficult the river is to access as well. You're not only seeing the river, but you're seeing the exaggerated bank. And so, like I fish in, like in Yellowstone, I've done. We do a lot of trips into the uh, the Dark Canyon or the, the the Black Canyon of the Yellowstone. Well, there's places in there you just can't get to the river. It's too steep. Two canyon walls are too steep. And so, as you're hiking along that path, I want to know where I need to leave the path to get to those fishing spots, so I don't get cliffed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I do all that work ahead of time. And then what I'll do is I'll save all those points. Let's say, let's do this Rock Creek example. So I've got this whole Rock Creek 
set of data points. I've got the path. I've got all my points, all the things that I want. I'll put them in a folder. I'll create a new folder in Google Earth and I'll drop all those points and the path in the folder. And then you'll click on the folder. This is a key. You have to actually click on the folder and then you have to go to file and you have to save as, you have to go to save place as. It doesn't have an export feature. It does, but it's, it does, it's not the word export, it's weird. You have to go to file, save, and then save place as. And then when that window will pop a window, you'll give it a name and you'll wanna save it as a KML, not a KMZ, save it as a KML file. And then you're able to import that folder into Onyx Maps or Guy or whatever you want, and then you're good to go. Yeah, I think it's a, that's an important point to make too. That KML files are are kind of king across all these, um, especially well, KMZ. Exactly, KMZ is just a compressed version of the KML, so it's really a similar file. But I have found that these hunt applications or these outdoor applications. They just don't play very well with the KMZ files. Okay. They seem to do better if you do the KML exports out of Google Earth. Okay. Now, um, before we before we move on to some of the other applications, and this might be relevant to both Google Earth and other applications, but how are you organizing your points? Do you have a specific method of organization uh, apart well, from a, apart from just exporting and transferring across the uh, the yes. different applications? Yes, I'm glad you said that. So. Obviously, I do a lot of e-scouting for hunting, and I've got, you wouldn't believe, if, I, if you could see my Google Earth right now, you, you blow your mind. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Um, but I've got different folders for different states. Okay. And inside those states, I've got different folders for different hunting units. Um, and then inside those state folders, I've got different folders for fishing units. Uh, not fishing units, but rivers. So I will call it, I will use the word fish dash river, just so it's easy for me to pick up. And if you always use the word fish, when you sort that folder, if you right click on that folder and sort it, it will always put the fish grouping together, which is really nice. So, I mean, it's obvious organizational stuff. People can figure that out, but a lot of people just don't take the time to kind of think of the nuances that you can do in Google Earth. So Creating folders is really something that you really don't get in the habit of just a bunch of points. Oh, so one of the things I want, how many times have you marked a bunch of points and then opened up Google Earth and they're gone? Um, Zero times because I've I've listened to your podcast before. Um, (laughs) So I save a lot. (laughs) So when you create a point, depending on where you're clicked. So the way Google Earth works, if you're clicked on a particular folder, and then you click the weight icon, it will put that waypoint or that place mark is what it's called in Google Earth in that folder. But if you're not clicked on anything, a lot of times it will put that stuff in temporary places. Mm, yeah. Right? Okay. That's bad. That's bad. Because Google Earth does not save temporary places. So if it crashes, or you know, Google Earth is really prone to crashing. It just is. I mean, it's just unfortunately, it just does. So you want to move your your points, if you want to keep them, out of temporary places up into your My Places folder. Um, And then you want to have folders within My Places as far as organizational-wise. And just come up with your own scheme. But I do it by state, and then I do it by hunt, and then I do it by fish. And then inside each one of those, 
is the various rivers and or the various hunting districts. I even go as far sometimes as to do hunt, district, and then species, whether it's elk or deer. So um, it gets a little confusing if you're not careful, but it depends on how much organization you want to get. Here's the problem. If you start off with a good, and I can already tell by your podcast information that you're a highly organized individual. Yes, um, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> the prep information that you sent me, I'm like, she's already OCD. I can tell her. <laughs> so um, the more organized you are from the beginning, uh, the more you're going to love Google Earth. If you just start getting a whole bunch of points, it's just random. And what I like about organizing like this, the way I said, when you do the state and then break it up, you know, you can turn folders on and off. I don't, you obviously probably know that. So the way Google Earth works is you can turn my places all on and all off if you want, or you can turn on or off those individual folders. So it lets you um, kind of pick and choose what you're looking at. And, um, and so I, that's kind of the way I approach it. I don't know if that makes sense, if that was a good explanation, but that's how I approach it. No, it is. And I, and I think uh, one thing that's important to note is that it's it's not really important how you organize. I think just the fact that you organize is important. That's, um, that's right. Exactly. You know, like I, I don't hunt as many states as you do. I'm still struggling to hunt my own state. So I don't need multiple states, but I hunt fish and ski. So I've got a different folder for each one of those things where I can mark different things and then subfolders within each of those. So um I, but like you said, it can be really overwhelming if you just start making points. That's how my Onyx gets. I, have to, I always have to do like a cleanup. I, I tend to keep Google Earth pretty organized, but Onyx, since I'm using it in the field, I'm just like marking things down. I see something interesting. I just hit mark waypoint and don't even do anything with it. And then I get home and I've just got a, a map full of red dots and, and nothing, to, nothing to say about any of them. So I have to go and do like a, a spring cleaning and get them all well, put into folders. So that brings up another good point. This is another thing that crosses over from hunting this, my class versus fishing and everything else. I have a whole module in this course <laughs> dedicated to markups, meaning basically data markups that you're putting on your map, how to organize them, how to color code them. So the way I do it is like you just said, when you're using Onyx map and you drop a random point, it uses the red icon. Okay. I reserve red for just that purpose random pin drops that I don't really have anything planned for. I'm just interested in it. And later I may come back and investigate it. So it's just sets there and it's red. So any point that I mark, the moment it becomes important to me, meaning that it's something that I want to make sure that I, you know, keep my, you know, record of, I will change the icon and I will change the color. So when I'm looking at my map and I'm seeing red points, I know those red ones are random points that doesn't mean they're not meaningless. It just means they're random, you know, need, need if you want a lack of a better word, need more investigation. And these other ones have been investigated. There's a purpose for those. And they're all colored by a scheme that I use. Um, and everybody, and again, it's not the scheme, it's that you have one. And so I do the same thing in Google Earth. Google Earth has a almost an infinite number of colors and icons just a really you know you want to really think through your method um i'm not even sure that a little cheat sheet you know isn't warranted if you really want to get into this on a uh, on a whole next level basis where the yellow pen that's the normal google earth 
I treat it just like the red Onyx map icon. When I see the yellow, I know it's just a unassociated, I call, unassociated point of interest. And anything that's white or red or blue or has a certain icon, I know those have a, a particular purpose. But when you're looking at a big map and you got all these random points, it really starts to make a lot of sense if you if you adopt some type of organizational structure like that. Now, when you're looking at these uh, kind of un, un, uh, unspoken four pins, the the red ones or the yellow ones in Google Earth, are right. you when you're adding them? Are you putting a couple little notes with it so you remember? Because my my big problem is that I'll I'll do the same thing <laughs> you do, where I'll mark a bunch. I'll be like, oh, I'll just visit this later and edit it, and then I come back and I'm it's just a red pin with no writing, and I'm like, I I have no idea what I was looking at here, <laughs> like especially That's if it's point. something I marked in the field, like maybe it's just a clearing that looked good, but I have no idea what it is when I'm looking at the aerial photo with it. Yeah. And that's, to be honest with you, um, that's the reason I adopted this practice because I was, you know, girl, I'm an e-scouting maniac. I mean, I am, I'm on this stuff. I hunt this year. I'm going to hunt. Well, I'm hunting five different States and for just for elk, that doesn't even count mule deer and bear and everything else. So the amount of data that I roll into the field with is pretty enormous. And so I had to develop a system that could keep track of this stuff and, um, and organize it. So, but yes, when I, so what you're talking about though, is you're kind of saying I'm marking a point, but it means something to me. So you're saying, I want to add some notes. I want to remember this. I'm not saying I wouldn't keep it yellow or red. I'm just saying the moment you start to add notes to it, you might want to think about changing the icon and the color because it's becoming meaningful to you at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I guess what I'm thinking of is is less um, when I'm actually e-scouting and more. This is more specifically for Onyx than Google because yeah. Google is you know you're using it on your computer at home, but a lot of times. Um, for, for Onyx, like I, I'll be walking up a river and I'm like, okay, I'm going to mark um, points of interest along this river. Like maybe there's sure. a, okay, a place you. for I me to you. access the river. So I'll start marking them. But um, if I come back and look at that uh, via the aerial view, I might not see that the reason I marked it is because there's a little um, path through the willows from the trail down to the river. And so I just see that point and I don't really know what it was because um, on the aerial view, it doesn't look like anything. It, it only means something in the field. And if I'm looking at it from, from home, which is when I'm going to be doing the markups, I need some sort of reference to tell me, Hey, what was this? And so, uh, later I'll come back and color code it and things, but I do need to put a couple notes. What, when it is specifically, uh, like a field, a field generated point, because otherwise a lot, a lot of those things you can't see from the aerial imagery. Uh, and so that's why I find it helpful for me to put just a couple little notes. I'll just put like access. So that way I know I'm not supposed to be looking for anything. Um, like uh, apart from that, when I'm, when I'm looking at it on my computer. No. Yeah, I do. I absolutely do, um, do that. And what I'll do a lot of times, I don't know if you use an iPhone or not, but, um, you know, I typing in notes is a pain in the butt. It is. So <laughs> I, I use the voice recorder. Oh, I, use okay. the, I use the voice text to speech. You know, it doesn't get it perfect, but it gets it good enough that it's yeah. gonna, you're going to know you're going to know what you were trying to say. Right. And, and so, half the time you don't type it right either when you're when you're that's hurry. right. <laughs> so. so I will do that. I will hit the note. I will hit the waypoint, hit the edit, hit the note and then hit that microphone button all the time. And I'll say, hey, this is a good access spot. I need to investigate this further, whatever. And then and then I might go back and clean it up later if I want to, whatever the case. But 
Um, yeah, I do that all the time while I'm hunting a fish, you know, up and down, like you said, the bank. But again, what's nice about, let's say you did this ahead of time, okay? And you had your different colors up and down the river. Let's say you had, you know, you try to use whatever for fishing. You got your, your fishing spots are blue, let's just say. And you've got your rock creek and you've got a bunch of blue spots. And then you start seeing a bunch of red spots. You know that you just dropped those red spots. So they don't get mixed in with the spots that you quote pre-done at home if you did like pre-scouting of this river. Mm -hmm. So having this organization or having some organizational theory behind your madness really makes you more efficient in the in, you know, when you're out in the field. It definitely and does. I can't, I can't tell you, it's been a game changer. I used to not do this. And one of the things, I don't want to be negative about anything, but one of the downfalls of Onyx Maps is, and now I think it's coming. I've heard of rumors. You know, I'm in the Onyx capital of the world. Their headquarters is here in Missoula, so I get some rumors here and there. Uh, this is unsubstantiated, by the way. But I hear they are about to introduce the folder option which I have been dying and screaming for. Thank God. So, <laughs> I, I said that in years ago as a request and I've been waiting eagerly <laughs> for it. Well, I, so I use Gaia GPS probably as much or more than I use Onyx. Uh, it is an incredibly powerful tool. If you are going into the national parks, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this. If you're going into the national parks or you're going any place that trails illustrated, I don't know if you've ever seen the Trails Illustrated map, but they're probably some of the best topographic, navigational, um, just, you know, more complete with camping and river accesses and information than any other map I've ever seen prepared by Trails Illustrated. They, Gaia has a new map layer that's for, it's Trails Illustrated, it has all of their maps. It is unbelievable. Um, it has every campground. It has all the requirements, every campground in Yellowstone and Rocky Mountain National Park, all of them. So it is all, it's invaluable to me. And I can't even stress that enough. And Gaia does have the folder structure. Okay. So, um, it's, you know, it's a free, you can go to GuyGPS.com, try it for free, um, and see what you think. It's cheaper. It's a little cheaper. It's $39 a year for every state, the whole country versus the $99 with Onyx, uh, for, or, you know, Onyx has the $29, $29.95 for one state. And, but I love them both. I have them both. I will not go into the field without both of them. So I'm just going to be honest, but when it comes to data organization, they don't have the folder structure. Number two is they don't have this trails illustrated national forest, uh, not national forest, but, National Parks map layer, which is really incredible. You should check that out for sure. Yeah, I'll have to give Gaia a try. I know I've got some friends who use it, um, but I wasn't sure the functionality with uh, a lot of the um, friends I have that use it are just like hikers and climbers. So I wasn't right. sure because Onyx has a lot more of the like the hunting specific things that I like to use. Gaia um, has all of it now, all the units, all the everything. Oh, really? Okay. Public, public land. It has, it has. Now, I will tell you, Onyx, when it comes to public land, the way it's organized and the way the borders show and just the clarity of it, Onyx is king when it comes to private land navigation. Okay, yeah, that's the other big thing I, I love it for. Yeah, me too. Me too. If you're dealing with private land and, and kind of trying to work around that, then Gaia has it. It has it. 
but I think Onyx is a little is a little better. But what Gaia has that Onyx does not have, besides the folder, which I love, I just absolutely have to have, is they have the pure USGS topographic layer. It is not a hybrid. The Onyx version is a hybrid topographic layer. It doesn't have the detail that a pure USGS topographic map has. So I love Gaia for that for that layer. And you know, Onyx has three layers. They have the satellite view, they have the hybrid, and they have the topo. Um, and then they have different, you know, different sublayers you can turn on, like fires and game management units and all kinds of stuff. But Gaia has, I don't know, Katie, probably 10 different topographic maps, probably eight different satellite photo layers. It's just, it's a little more overwhelming to get to use, but once you learn it, it's got it's got so many capabilities. So there's pluses and minuses. If you want it easier to use, quick and easy, and you do a lot of private land navigation, Onyx is your, is your tool. If you really want to get into the weeds and really look at a lot of different topographic layers, you want to look at national park layers, and you want to be able to organize things by folders, maybe Guy is your thing. If you totally geek out on this stuff and you want to have the maximum advantage, no matter where you go, then you need to get both. <laughs> okay. I might have to, I might have to do that and just get both. I'm, I'm not going to be leaving on X anytime soon, but I'm always a sucker for getting more and more tools that I can uh, play around with. So I'll, I'll have to check out Gaia and maybe see how to combine oh, them. I, hey, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Onyx fan, Katie. I'm a huge, I just re-upped my membership today. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of their product. Well, I think that's a, an important point is that like all, n- none of these things does everything. Um, right. You know, Google Earth would be kind of, kind of a pain if you were trying to do everything with it because you can't really take it in the field. That's um, right. So when I'm at home, I'm on Google a lot, and, but I'm using it with Onyx usually because of that private land. Um, I don't know if there's maybe a KML of private land you can import into Google, but it's, it seems like something you'd have to redo, you know, every year because, you know, property boundaries change and things. So that's right. But um, there is, there is layers. Yes. There is layers you can get for that KML layers. for Okay. Yes. But yeah, like all these things, they they each have their own purpose and I I feel like they're all best used in conjunction with everything else have them all pulled up and, and, you know, even the satellite imagery is going to be different. I know you said that Google has the the best resolution, but there's also times where maybe the image that they have in Google was in the winter or something and on X is in the summer or vice versa. That's right. Well, you know, it's funny you bring up, that's a great point. So in the course, uh, I found out, you know, I've always known that, but I, when I started filming my, my modules, it just started, the, the issue became glaring. So I had some of these, you know, sample areas and I had it pulled up on Google Earth at the highest resolution. One of the other things I love about Google Earth, it gives you the date of the photo. Um, and it has a historical timeline, you know, that you can go back and look at older photos if you want to. And uh, so I really love that feature in Google Earth. But I was looking at the most recent version. I was looking at a trailhead and I was trying to evaluate how much pressure this trailhead gets for potential hunting access. Is it, is there like 50 horse trailers going to be there or is there going to be, is it a small parking area or a big parking area? You know, whatever. So I zoomed in on it with Google earth and there was a white truck or a yeah, white truck parked there. I pulled up Gaia. There was a blue car there. I pulled up, on X and there was no vehicles there. So between the three different applications, I had three different views of the same trailhead. And what was interesting about that was I could see a horse corral 
in one of them, but I couldn't see it in the other two. So it let me know that maybe there's some, you know, a little bit of horse activity, not that I wouldn't go there, but it's, it's good information to know. But if I would have only looked at one option, I wouldn't have been able to uncover that little piece of information. And also probably important that you, you didn't see more than one vehicle in any of the photos. Um, you know, if you well, could look at one and there's one vehicle and then you look at another and there's 30 vehicles, but you know, maybe you wouldn't have guessed that it was that busy just by looking at the, the one that has a single vehicle. That's right. And especially that that's where Google Earth shines. You know, you let's say you look at Gaia and there's 10 cars there. Well, is that July or is that hunting? Is that October? And so then I immediately will jump to Google Earth and look at their imagery. So if I could, if it just so happens, it pulls up a, uh, a September 15th during archery season, it pulls up September 15th and there's no vehicles there. I'm like, huh. Boom. <laughs> now that doesn't mean there's not going to be anybody there. Let's be honest. But I pulled up other trailheads, no exaggeration, 25 horse trailers parked there. Yeah, probably not and where you're going to want to go. And you're like, if you got a backpack on your back, I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm going to look for another spot. But these are all things I teach in my course that apply to fishing too, you know. And if you can see obvious pull-off spots along the river, you know the people are going to be parked there. If you can find a bend in the river, that looks like there might be some soft water just downstream of that. And then you go out to the road, let's say the road's a quarter mile away and you can't find any pull off spots on the road with the maximum Google earth um, zoom. You might be able to make the assumption that this spot doesn't just get pounded on at least. But if you see a bunch of, if you see a couple pull off spots um, and then you see the bend, that doesn't mean you wouldn't fish it. It just means that you can, you know, I call it evaluating the pressure. I have a whole module dedicated to it where we go through not only looking at trailheads and parking spots, but we look at trails. If we, how can we, can we see the trail on Google Earth? How clear is it? Is there grass growing up in the trail or does it look bright, meaning it's dirt? Those can tell you a lot about how much you can make some assumptions, not guarantees. But you can make an assumptions based on, on pressure, based on the maximum zoom imagery um, when you look at it. But one of the things I want to point out, Katie, is these are things that you cannot do in the field. The zoom capabilities of the downloaded maps and the offline views do not have the quality to get into that kind of detail. So if you're going to try to evaluate pressure and look at trails and, and really look at things like in that kind of close up, you, you need to do it before you, you know, head out in most cases, most cases. Now, this is a perfect segue into kind of the next topic I wanted to tackle, which is um, less about the actual functionality of the programs and more like what you're looking for when you're looking for a fishing spot. Um, I know that it's, it's a little bit different than something like hunting, because for example, for hunting, you're looking for places that might hold elk. Like what, what, you know, features or topographical areas are going to bring elk to them, but fish are stuck in the water they're in. Um, so you're, I mean, you're looking for water, but what are you looking for when you're, when you're evaluating these different spots? If you see a bit of water on the map, be it a river or a lake, what is it that goes through your head to evaluate whether that's a spot worth hitting, um, compared to something like hunting where it's, you're, you're trying to figure out what's going to draw animals in, um, for fishing, you're not, you don't need to look for that. So what are you looking for? Well, I mean, honestly, I kind of approach it the same way. I mean, you know, I'm looking for features that when I'm hunting, I'm looking for features. I call them in the course, I call them elk finding 
concepts or elk finding features. I look for certain things that I know that attract and hold elk. You know, the meadows, obviously feeding zones. I look for benches and saddles and canyons with no trails and blah, blah, blah. There's just a, a you know, a, a not a, I wouldn't say not a limitless, but there's a, there's a finite group of data or, or types of terrain features or habitat, so to speak, that I'm looking for. And what I'm looking for is areas that have multiples of those. I call it in the course, I call it odds multipliers. So when I see five or six of these features in the same area, I know that there's something interesting going on here. So in fishing, I'm doing kind of the same thing. So the first thing I would kind of want to do is that flyover, like I mentioned. And what I'm looking for is I'm looking for those runs and riffle and pool transitions. You know, and it's not hard to tell that from an aerial photo, especially Google Earth, because it's really important. The date of the photos is important because you can kind of predict runoff times. You can, like in Montana, you know, the runoff is, you know, is a, is a real serious issue here. And we're just now into the, I mean, we had some 80 degree days, so it's, the fishing is pretty much over. Um, except for the, you know, the more dam control type rivers. But so we're waiting for the snowmelt. So if you're looking at rivers in Montana in May, you're not going to get a good look at what they're going to be looking like in August or September. So that's where Google Earth comes in for me as far as the dates are concerned. So I pay attention to the dates depending on what you're looking at. If you're in Missouri or in your other spots in the country that you don't have the runoff issues, it obviously will be more dependent on water levels and flows, of course, but it's a lot more realistic. So I look for, you know, I love fishing runs that turn into riffles, you know, where you get the calmer water that's more undulating, that's a little deeper running over large rocks, and it's creating this undulating current. And then it transitions to more, I call it the diamond water, or that riffle water where it becomes a lot more shiny water. I love fishing those transitions. So I look for those, especially in, you know, I, that's one of my top features. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm wanting to streamer fish or I'm wanting to, you know, whatever I'm doing, um, I'll look for the more deeper pools. I'll look for the calmer water. I'm looking for the, the water that looks like it's just not moving very much. It obviously is. But on Google Earth, um, you can pick you can pick some of this up, and uh, depending on the quality of the photos and when they were taken, of course, and a lot of factors. But so I really spent a lot of time on that flyover, looking for just kind of the general. A lot of times, I will do a general flyover and get kind of the lay of the land, so to speak, and then I'll go back and start looking at it a little more microscopically. So I love big rivers, and when I'm looking at bigger rivers or bigger creeks. I'm looking for bends. I, I really love fishing the downstream of the bend. And I love fishing um, that riffles, real powerful riffles, or even you know more, much more turbulent water when it starts to calm. So uh, that's one. And I'm looking at the headwaters. So I, I really zero on riffles, I guess is what I'm saying. I really like uh, fishing above the fast water, and I like fishing below the fast water, both.
Okay. So uh, I focus on those. And, and if I'm streamer fishing, like I said, I'm looking for the deeper pools. I don't know if that starts to begin to answer your question, but those are things I'm drilling in on. No, it does. And and do you uh, do you fish lakes much? And how is that? How does that differ since you're not looking for those currents? Well, on the lakes, I don't have a lot. You know, I do fish some lakes in the outside. You know, we pack into it, but most of the ones we're packing into are pretty deep, are pretty deep lakes. And we're um, one of the things I do look for is I try to look for inlets. I really find that the the high mountain lakes are particularly good where there's raw water is coming into the system. And so if you could find where the springs or where the runoff is entering and, and a lot of times in these basins, it's coming in multiple places. And if you can identify those and mark those so that as you're walking around a, a lake, you can get right to those spots. And you've already got them pre-identified. And you also, I mean, it's tough to tell sometimes, but the clarity of these mountain lakes, you can see the bottom and, and a lot of them, and you can start to judge the depths. And, you know, like any fishing, if you can fish the um, transition areas, if you can reach them, if you're fly fishing or whatever type of fishing you're doing, if you can um, analyze the where the breaks are from the shallow to the deep, and you can kind of draw a line on those, and you kind of know where they're at in the lakes before you get there, very powerful stuff. And uh, so with lakes, I typically will look at just a couple things, to be honest. I will look at the marshy areas. Um, the low land, the low water for where there might be some more prolific hatching going on. I will look at the water inlets that are coming into the lakes and I will try to look at the depth, make a little bit of depth analysis if it's possible. Sometimes they're just too bright green or too bright uh, blue with the reflection to, to be able to do it. But if you can, it's a very good, very good tool. Yeah, I, I noticed that finding shelves can be really easy um, yeah, with aerial imagery. Yeah. And a lot of times yeah. those are, you know, weightable. You can just wait out to the, the edge that's of the right. shelf, and that's where they're going to be hanging out, right off the edge of that. That's right. Um, exactly. Draw a line on the shelf. And what's nice about that line is as you're waiting out, you know how close you're getting to it. So you don't even have to get to it. You can cast to it once you see yourself in the proximity of that shelf. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah, I've never done you know that. I mean? Yeah, so that's what I'm talking about, doing the stuff ahead of time so that it's a little more usable for you when you're in the field. Um, Cause you know, lake fishing, as you know, those fish are, they, they're just much spookier. And especially in the, in the shallower type stuff. So the more stuff you have marked that you can, if you want to call it hunting, that you can slip up on a little more stealthier, uh, the better chance you got than just busting on in there and uh, and not knowing kind of where you're at. So the shelf, identifying those shelves is really a, a great thing, especially if, um, you know, the lakes just don't change much as far as topography, those high mountain lakes. There are going to be some change, but for the most part, they're a little more predictable than, at least in Montana, with the snowmelt different times of year with the photos. Yeah, and I, I guess one, I've never actually done this, but you just made me think of it when we were talking about the, uh, Changing, changing the different times, you know, you can view things yeah. through the historical data um, to try to figure out when they ice off because that's a big thing here. It's like I don't want to hike up to a lake if it's potentially still completely iced over, uh, but I also don't want to. I don't want to miss it. You know, I want to. Well, I want to catch it like right when it's thawing out. Well, here's another. Then I'm going to give you another great tip. <laughs> there is a. It's. You know, I'm going to say this slow so you guys can uh, write this down. But 
you're going to want to Google N-O-H-R-S-C snow model snapshot. And uh, what that does, it shows you the current snow levels. And it's done by aerial photo analysis. And I think it's done by heat mapping. Uh, I'm not sure how they do it, but it is so daggum accurate. I can't, I don't know how they get it this accurate. But you could, you know, for bear hunting, for example, um, I, I really love bear hunting and bear meat's one of my favorite meats. But snow, spring, hunting these suckers is so dependent on the snow, retreating snow. And I want to be, I don't want to be right on the snow line. I want to be about five or 600 elevation feet below that snow line. Because in my, in my experience, at five or 600 feet, and the amount of time it takes that snow to melt, again, this all depends on how warm it is, et cetera. The green grass and the little sprouts will be the most supple and they'll be the most tender at that, at that level. So I will spend some time on this snowpack analysis. And there's a KML, there's a KML file that you can download that has that. No way. I, I know we're not done with this talk yet, but I'm going to go out and let <laughs> say that you may have just given me the best tip you're going to give me. Um, I've been, I've been wanting a tool to deal with, with snow like this. And uh, yeah. I think this, I'm going to be hopping on immediately after this call to check it out. Well, that's another reason you're going to want Gaia because Gaia has that layer built into their program. Built into oh, their really? Okay. Yeah. So you can get the KML file for Google earth, but you can also get the layer in Gaia that you can take in the field. And I assume that for Google Earth, you're going to need to reload it every time to get the change, whereas something like Gaia is probably going to give you the the most updated one. Exactly. The same way that like Onyx shows current wildfires or whatever. It's going to cache it. Yeah, it's going to cache it. Um, okay. I think. I don't I don't know the term that that's used, but um, the the best way to do it is in, is in uh, Google Earth because it's a KML layer that draws it automatically from the internet. Oh, okay. So, you know, so it's like, you don't have to re-download it every time. It's oh, drawing okay. the, yeah, it's drawing the new data. Um, I believe, I, I need to double check that. This is a new find for me. This is only a, less than a year old for me. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, um, maybe there are, because I, I was under the impression that most of these files, you download it, and then that, that was a snapshot at the time that you downloaded it, and you'd have to, to update it. But maybe there are ones that can, like, link out to the internet and, and update but like this snow model snapshot that I told you, this has got snow depth. It's got snow cover. It's got snow density. It's got a snow melt. It's got all these folders you can turn on and off. It's crazy how much data is there. Doug, can you repeat it one more time one. just to make sure it's, I got it right? If you Google, it's N-O-H-R-S-C snow model snapshot. Perfect. And there's a couple out there. So if you, if, if you just, I think if you just did Google earth KML snowpack layers as well, you'll get the various ones that are out there, but this NOH RST one is, um, uh, seems to be a pretty good one. Like for example, one I'm looking at here, I don't know that it does update because I think you may have to download it each time, which is no big deal. It's real fast because the one I'm looking at is dated 5-5-20, which is, oh, what am I saying? That is correct. That's today. All right. <laughs> oh, I thought that was, yeah. Are you kidding me? Well, I just answered my question. So, <laughs> so it updates um, automatically. 
because I downloaded this months ago. So yeah, there you go. Question Perfect. answered. Learn, yeah, learn something new. I didn't. I didn't realize they would update. Yeah. So anyway, I I uh, I like that uh, that capability for that's a good tip for that I haven't really talked about on many podcasts. For if you have any bear hunters, um, nobody talks about that. That's probably the first time you've ever heard that that mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I have, and and I know that uh, turkey hunters, you know, want to follow the snow line too. So I'm sure that's exactly. that's useful to a yeah. whole bunch of people. And like I said, for me, it's just I I, I love going up to the Alpine Lakes, and I I want to hit them right around ice off. So right. uh, you might be able to see maybe once the I'm sure they stay icy. Uh, well, I guess I don't know because um, I'm not usually up there right right when it's uh, starting to ice off. But you could probably see just a, a bright patch there if it's still got ice on it. Well, um, the other thing they have. You know, so you can couple this, Katie, is not only can you download the snow KML, but you can also download surface temperature. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So that can, you know, that's not going to be perfect, but it's going to give you some ideas that you can start making some assumptions. I like to say that word um, of the ice off, you know, like you said, and it, it kind of sucks if your favorite lake is six miles up and you keep hiking up there and it keeps being frozen. <laughs> right. You can only do that so many weekends in a row before you're going <laughs> to give up. So, <laughs> you know, and so you want to kind of narrow things down a little bit. Um, but I really like that. I really like those layers. Yeah, that's an, that's an awesome tip. I, I can't wait to check that one out. That's, that's exactly the kind of stuff that I wanted to have you on to talk about, because like I said, you're, you're probably one of my favorite guests on most of the hunting podcasts that I've heard you on, um, just because you have so many of these little tips that they don't seem like much. It's just, you know, a single layer or a single tool that you can toggle on and off. But sometimes a single thing like that can make a world of difference. You know, it's not, it doesn't have to be a major feature for it to completely change how you're using a tool. Okay. One, I'm old, so I have a lot of experience. <laughs> two, two <laughs> I come from an IT background. So I'm kind of a strange hunting um, fishing person because I'm an IT heavily IT focused guy. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of this remote backcountry guy and I love fly fishing, not as much as elk hunting, but it's probably my number two. Um, and it's kind of how I get in shape for elk hunting. And so, um, you know, it's a kind of a nice marriage for me. And that's really what the well, and I already mentioned, I'm from Missouri. You're not going to be successful. You know, I always say in my course, if you, you know, elk hunting is about, you know, and I know you're figuring this out, is about a 10% success rate for public land, do-it-yourself elk hunters. The average is roughly about 10%. And I say in my course over and over, if you want to be a 10% success elk hunter, then you can just keep acting like a 10% success elk hunter. But if you start to learn these tools and you not only learn to use them, but you learn how to really use them. I mean, how many of your listeners use Google Earth and they say, oh, I got it. I, I know everything, but I know how to use Google Earth. But after just listening to a few things, maybe they don't. Maybe they didn't know about the snow layer. Maybe they didn't know about the earth point. Maybe they didn't know about the folders. Maybe they didn't know about the export. Um, maybe they didn't know why they kept losing their points in temporary places. Um, the other thing that I don't know if you use a lot is the photos, you know, turning on the photo layer in the, down in the very bottom of Google earth. And if you're in a popular spot, there is always a photo of that lake. And I look at those all the time. It gives you an idea of what you're looking at. You know, people have been 
real good about um, taking photos and posting them to Google Earth. And you can just turn on that photos with one click of the button. It'll turn on all the photos throughout the whole area. And here's another tip. If you got a lake that's got 25, 30 photos of it, it's going to be a busy lake. Right. If you find a lake that has no photos taken of it, there might not be any fish, but there also may not be anybody there. I mean, not many people. So I use them in hunting. I look for those. This is another tip for that works for fishing. I teach my, my participants to look for these clusters of photos. That's going to give you an indication of pressure, even if it's only, now let's face it, hunters don't post a lot of hunting pictures on Google Earth. So you might, you're not going to see that, but it does give you an idea of recreational use pressure. So this is particularly applicable to fishermen is looking at those photos. That doesn't mean you don't want to go, but you know, like all these things that we're talking about, these are all things that I like to analyze so that I'm getting a well-rounded look at what I'm getting into. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to go. It just means I need to understand what's the road look like? How many parking spots along the road? What's the river look like? We're doing the flyovers. How many photos have been taken of this area? Um, and it starts to paint a pretty, a look at the snowpack. It starts to create a pretty good little picture, a pretty good little picture for you, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it might be a little bit different between fishing and hunting, just because a lot of people, when they're going out for a hike or something, their destination is to get to a body of water. Like a lot of trails lead to water. Whereas for hunting, you're trying to get as far away from those, those trails and those hotspots. And fishing, you're kind of by default often going, unless you're going to like a, you know, remote mountain stream. A lot of those lakes are the destination for hikers. So I guess ideally you get to a spot that does have a photo or two so you can you can look at it and assess it but not one that has so many photos that you realize that you're just going to be shoulder to shoulder with other people uh, probably a popular fishing spot too do you happen to know if the photos in google earth are the same ones that are in google maps because i know if you go to street view if you click on the street view in google maps it'll show you um, where any wherever anyone has taken a picture and that's you know including the streets that the google streetcar or whatever is driving but they also include, uh, I guess, user-submitted photos, and I they use that a lot. They are the same photos. They are they the are? same photos. Okay. Because if you, if you open, if you expand the folder in Google Earth, it will say Google Maps photos. Okay. Okay. That answers my question. Because, yeah, I always do it on yeah. Google Maps just because it's a little, you know, I, I like having the ability to turn off the satellite view for some of those so I can see where all the photos are. Um, but that's good to know that they're the same ones. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't always have the date. I don't know. So Google Earth, I, I really haven't spent a lot of time lately analyzing the, the process, but there's an old photos layer and there's a new photos layer. And I'm not sure if both exist um, on the same, but just keep in mind, I need to do some more investigation to this. Um, but just a few years ago, or even not not that long ago, Google Earth switched from their traditional way of doing photos, excuse me, to this newer way. And I'm not sure what that means. The photos are still there and it does list them as Google Maps photos, but I don't know if that includes the old and the new, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it shows the photos, you know, in all the spots that, um, but again, you know, not many people take the time to do this. So when you see a lot of photos, that usually can indicate some pretty significant pressure, as you said. Mm-hmm. 
No, I don't, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do have a couple more questions, um, just regarding like finding fishing spots. Uh, the first one that I think might be kind of quick is, uh, I know, is it top rut that you use, um, in conjunction with this for hunting? Top rut. Yeah. Um, very powerful. When you're, when you're looking for fishing spots, one of the, one of the hard parts about finding some of these remote spots is that you don't know for sure if they're going to be fished there. Uh, you can make some reasonable assumptions. Like you said, I always, I always look for inlets cause I assume that can probably hold fish. Um, I look for lakes that aren't too shallow thinking that they won't freeze over or like can freeze completely through. But do you have any, uh, like outside resources that you're using specifically yes. to find out if there's going to be fish in a certain spot? It's funny you said that because I'm planning a trip right now that for uh, some clients that are renting some llamas that are going to go to a lake. And one of the things in Montana, for example, in most states, well, every state has it. It just, they, I'll be honest with you, some states make it a little harder. But if you can't find it, make a phone call. This is public information. This is not something that, quote, can be held or kept from you. But every state, especially these Western states, they have a stocking program for these mountain lakes. and they have detailed records, not only when they stock, but what length of fish they stock, what length they stock, what date they stock, how many they stock. And so I really dial into those. That doesn't mean there's not going to be fish in lakes that they don't, um, um, that they don't uh, mention. The other thing, if you Google the lake name and the state, you know, don't just Google the name, but you do all the, and it, even to go a little further, because a lot of these lakes are named the same, of course. So Google the lake, the state, and the county. That's a good way to get drilled into that lake. A lot of times you'll find reviews that people have written that they've fished and they didn't see any fish rising or blah, blah, blah. Man, it's gold information. So, but the key is getting that name drilled down. But I found that if you do the name, the state, the county, it's pretty daggum specific and um or even the national forest if like for example if you did uh mystic lake beaverhead national forest montana it's going to bring up the right lake probably and you can read reviews about it but i also would look at the stocking reports um and see how many years it's been since they stocked it or if they've ever stocked it so um i don't know if that answers your question but those are two great ways that i use um yeah, that, that does answer my question. And I, I know each state will probably be a little bit different, too, in yeah, that right. um, beyond the stocking reports, I know here in Colorado, they have they have like a database of just it's 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 by no means all inclusive. Um, it probably only right. includes a small fraction, but they do have a, like an interactive fishing atlas. I think they call it where you can click on different lakes and things. and It'll just tell you what species are present. Um, so your state might have something similar to that where they where they do list a couple yeah, yeah, of yeah. the you know, spots yeah. and, and what's in them. Yeah, they have that. But I, more particularly, I really like those stocking reports because what you'll start to see is trends. Like they'll start to stock them like five years apart, four years apart. And then I just noticed this lake um, that I was looking at. Um, for They stocked 14 inch fish. And I'm like, that's rare. I don't don't see that that often. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm hitting that in, and I think it was 2018 or maybe 19. So, um, you know, obviously they don't grow fast in those mountain lakes and, um, and they get, you know, they probably get more stunted out and more limited in those lakes, but still I was, I was glad to see it. And if I wouldn't have spent much time, 
you know, I, I may not have known that. So there's a lot of things available. And, um, but I do love those stocking reports and that's public data. I mean, they pretty much, that stuff is available, even if you have to request it. Um, and um, those are good, those are good tips. Yeah. One other thing I'd mentioned that I just remembered um, that I sometimes do is uh, don't, don't limit yourself to um, like websites that are specifically talking about fishing. Uh, like I know I'll go on all trails sometimes if it's a popular exactly. lake and just read people's reviews because a lot of times, even if they weren't fishing, they'll be like, Oh yeah, there were lots of people fishing there. And that'll give yeah. you uh, an indication, not only if the, the amount of pressure, but let you know that, okay, if there's three guys fishing there, there's probably fish in there. You know, you don't know what it is, but you know that there's, there's something worth catching. Well, and it, it, you're right. All trails is really good. And the other thing all trails is good about is the difficulty, um, you know, just kind of rating the difficulty to the lake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, you know, one of the things that I like to do is this is another plug for Google earth is trace the route in or trace a path. We talked about how to do the path. So you'll trace the trail in and then click on show elevation profile and it'll show you the ups and downs of the whole path. And Onyx doesn't do that. I wish they had it. They don't. That's another feature that I wish they'd add. And Gaia does have that ability. It'll show you the elevation profile. So that can tell you what you're dealing with. Do you got super steep sections? Or is it pretty gradual all the way up? How many, what's your average slope? You know, Google Earth has a lot of data. It tells your average slope. It tells you your, um, you know, your total elevation up, your total elevation down. It gives you quite a bit of data when you look at the elevation profile of Google Earth. So don't forget that tip as well. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that for Google earth. I know Onyx has like the, it's got a layer that shows the, it's like, um, a color gradient of like green to red that, you know, you, it shows the trail and basically how, how aggressive your hiking is going to be at any spot, but it's, it's not really specific to, um, like amount of elevation gain or gives you that like sideways profile or anything like that. It just shows you, you know, this red part of the trail is going to be a more intense hike than the green part of the trail. Um, so I'll have to try that on Google earth and see what, see what that's like. Yeah, so what you want to do is you'll do that same path I told you about. and But you, it won't show you until you create it. So you have to create it and then save it, okay? And now you've got this red path on your screen. And then you're going to right-click. You're going to right-click on it. And it's going to say show elevation profile, okay? And then it's going to give you your total distance. It's going to give you your elevation gain loss. It's going to give you your max slope degree going to give you your average slope degree and then as you drag along the elevation profile it'll show you where you're at on the line it's freaking amazing that's awesome you, you've so, opened my eyes to so many google earth tools today <laughs> <laughs> well i use i use that hunting because you know hunting for llamas with my llamas i gotta really analyze like am i gonna getting am i getting into because uh, we do off trail a lot mm-hmm. and so when I'm going off trail, I got to make sure we're not getting cliffed out. I got to make sure we, you know, we can do some pretty steep stuff, but once it gets to a certain degree or a certain percentage, I got to be a little more, I might need to look at an alternate route. Well, that's really hard to tell with, well, you can't tell it with OnX. Now OnX has the red, green, yellow, but that's just kind of an estimated kind of thing that's good for a quick glance when you want to exactly. see is this going to be a hard hike or an easy hike oh it's mostly red or it's mostly green i use that you know when i'm in the field and i just want to know okay should i go on this trail or this trail oh this one looks a little bit easier um when you don't need that detail 
But in Google Earth, when you drag along the profile, you're going to love this. When you drag along the profile, it'll give you the slope at that particular point. So everywhere along that path, you, along that path, you can see every slope degree of every point. Now, when I say point, I don't mean waypoint. I mean as you're dragging, it changes live. So it's it's I, I'm surprised that more people don't realize it's there. But here's the problem with it. It's not available, I don't think, unless they've added it in this last version. I mean, look real quick. This is why most people don't know it exists. Uh, yeah, it's not there. You can't see it. It's not a menu item. It has to be done with the right click. So that's why people probably don't know it exists. A lot of people don't. And it's show elevation profile. But you have to create the path first. Then once it's saved, then go back and say show elevation profile. That's the okay. Way you do it. Yeah, I've, I've never seen that, but probably because I haven't right clicked. Uh, I know All Trails has a uh, a similar. Um, it's, I don't. I don't think it gives you like the the slope angle at any particular point, but it gives that good. Uh, like overview where it shows um, from start to finish what the ele- or what the elevation is, and so you can see like does it go up and down a lot? Does it go up right. to a peak and then back down? And I really like looking at that just to get an idea of uh, like what the hike's going to be like along the way. Um, so I, I do use all trails quite a bit actually, especially because uh, like we mentioned before for fishing, a lot of these places are destinations for for trails. Like the trail leads to the spot you're going to fish, so um, that's actually really helpful. Uh, if you are going to be staying on trail the whole way that you, you, there's often a resource that will show you what that trail is like from start to finish. Well, so I don't want to be a, I don't want to give a shameless plug. So I've already gave a lot of on X plugs because you know how much I, I do like on X, but Gaia, there's two things about Gaia that are incredible with what you just said. So on these trails that are established, like, you know, on the USGS topographic map, there's a trail that leads from the trailhead to Mystic Lake. Okay. Like you said, most of these lakes all have trails going to them. I mean, you're not going to find very many that don't. So all you have to do with Gaia, which is so amazing, let's say it's 10 miles. It would take you a few minutes to click in Google Earth and in OnX to click, 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 and kind of follow that path. And you're never going to be able to follow it really perfectly. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So with, with Gaia, they have this, it's called snap to function. You can click on the trailhead and then click on the lake and it will snap the line to the trail. It is incredible. And so then you've got your whole path marked to the trail, um, to the lake, and then you can click on that and look at the profile um, with two clicks and it's done. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Instead of click, 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 you know, to create a path. Um, So you can do it multiple ways. But if you really do a lot of hiking, let me put it this way. If you hike to a lot of lakes and you fish and you go to a lot of rivers and you're looking to get the access points and what the and really make sure you have those identified, especially if you're a boater or a drip boater or a rafter, guy is the king. I mean, it's just the king. With the snap to function of trails, with being able to look at elevation profiles and um, and, and those kind of tools, it's just it's just hands down. It's, it just dominates. Um, but again, I use them all. And that's, you know, it's like, I guess I'll use this analogy. If you were a carpenter, Katie, would you go to build a house and only take a hammer with you? No. You know, <laughs> you need multiple tools to build a house. 
And when you're, when you're doing fishing on the level we're talking about, and when you're hunting on the level we're talking about, I feel strongly that you need multiple tools in your toolbox to do it at the maximum high end level. And why would you want to, I'm sure you want to harvest an elk. I mean, you're not going out there just to, I mean, I'm sure you love it out there, but your primary goal is you'd like to put some meat in the freezer, I'm sure. So why would you want to decrease your odds by not knowing, not having this information? So learning these, I guess the last thing I'll leave your listeners with is learning these programs, Google Earth, Gaia GPS, Onyx Maps, really taking them to the next level is going to do nothing but increase your odds to do, to find better fishing, to have a better, you know, better success there. And in particular hunting and the tools are available and the people that are using them, their odds are way higher than yours. If you're not using them, let me just put it that way. Yeah. And not to mention that I feel like for, you know, most people that, that like recreating outdoors, this is fun. It's, it's not a chore to go on and and browse maps. Like I love sitting down for a couple hours and just scrolling around. Um, so having multiple tools, is just like, great. When I'm done with one, I get to go on the next one and see what's different. It's, it's a, it's a fun activity. Um, it's, it's not a hindrance to, to have multiple things to play around with. Well, they're not difficult. It's just, I'm hoping this podcast is going to get people energized and it's given them a lot of things to think about. That's for sure. And some things to explore and make them look a little deeper into, you know, a lot of programs. It's like Word. I mean, how many people open up Word and they type a letter? They don't even realize all the functionality that Word has. Now, Excel is a whole nother beast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so my point is Google Earth and OnX, now they're not at the level probably of those programs, but there's a lot more intricacies to these things as we're finding out today on the podcast than what a lot of people may, may believe. Yeah, and, I think a lot uh, of these things just aren't obvious. No, and they're not in manuals. It's funny, like I've I've read the user manuals, okay, of lots of these things. And a lot of this stuff just really isn't really addressed. At least it's not addressed in a way that really presents it to the outdoorsman. Does that make sense? It's written more in a technical way. Yeah. And it doesn't really like elevation exaggeration. If you read that in the manual. You never would probably relate it to, hey, that's going to help me see the train a little better than I don't. It's not going to say that it's going to say that it's going to do this technical thing and this technical thing. And really, the reason it was created, I think, was for um, uh, cityscape analysis when like city planning and looking at skylines and, um, you know, high rises and buildings. I believe that a lot of this exaggeration stuff was built for not only terrain was but for city evaluations and uh but it's very beneficial to the hunting fishing world too well that's like the path that you mentioned you know if you just you told me in a in a user manual that you can draw a line and then fly it i'd be like well i don't I'd rather scroll myself. Like, yeah, like I don't want to fly over. I I want to scroll and have control of where I am. But when you put it in the context of being a certain elevation over the river you want to look at and getting a a quick picture without having to scroll and lose your spot because Google Maps or or Google Earth just flew in a different direction like it like it tends to do. Yeah, it's it's um, more useful to put it in the context of what you want to use it for versus just giving a technical explanation of you draw a line and then you're going to fly along that line. Like that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, That's right. So, uh, 
why, why don't you just finish up by uh, plugging your course? I know you've mentioned it, but I, I definitely want you to kind of explain what your course is. Um, I know some people might not be into hunting, but even if they're not, sure. Uh, I'm well, sure it'd be useful for fishing. And there's probably a lot of hunters out there that, that could use it. So um, no, feel so, free to plug um, away. Well, let's start with um, my main website is treelinepursuits.com and treeline pursuits on Instagram and treeline pursuits on Facebook. And I think you'll probably put a link in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. But um, the treeline pursuits, if you just want to remember one, you know, I, I do, I do have this course, but um, I do have a lot of other things on my uh, website. I, I write a lot of articles and I write for several websites and so all of my articles are linked there and I do quite a bit of dehydrated food stuff. I spent so much time in the backcountry, Katie, that I couldn't eat mountain house for the rest of my life. It just was not going to work out. <laughs> so I took it up on myself years ago to really dig deep into dehydrating. So I have a lot of YouTube videos and articles on the gear and bags and how to do it to take your own meals in the backcountry. So not only do I have this e-scouting course, but I'm really into the dehydrating and making my own food. I've got a lot of llama, pack llama resources on my website as well. Uh, and then there's a link to the course. And the course is at treelineacademy.net. And, you know, and again, it's in the introductory launch period right now. So for the month of May, if you use the code launch, um, that will get you $40 off. So it's only $79 and it gets you two years of access. But, you know, you fit the fishermen out there, there's, I mean, there's four master series in this course that teach the Google Earth and all the things we went over and more, Onyx, Gaia GPS, and Base Map. Just those alone are probably worth the course value just for, um, and then not to mention the markup. We talked about organizing your markups and your data in Google Earth. We cover all of that. Obviously, a lot of hunting stuff as well, but there's a lot of stuff that could be of interest um, to for those that are interested in that. But um, I am considering doing a second course when I get this one finished, which will be diving into dehydrated meals on a little more high-end basis. So that's kind of my next thing that I'm planning down the road, maybe for the wintertime when I'm sitting around with snow up to our neck up here in Montana. So um, anyway, that's kind of what I got going. So follow me on Instagram and I've got a YouTube page as well. And they're all at Treeline Pursuits. All right. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for coming on a talk. I've, I've gotten so many nuggets from this. I can't wait to hop off and, uh, get, <laughs> well, get on all you. these programs and try all these things out. So, um, I really can't thank you enough for, for sharing all this. I know that, uh, you probably give it away a lot of the secrets that you share in your course, but, um, it sounds like it's well worth the money. You said for two years, um, yeah. which I know well, most I courses don't I, do that. I can't believe I gave out my bear snow tip. That's the first time I've I've ever given that out. (laughs) Now no one's going to sign up for the course. You've you've given away. That's not even, that's not even actually in the course because it's, it's an elk hunting course, but, um, so I'll send you the link and I hope you enjoy it. But again, I really appreciate it. Um, any feedback, don't hold back good or bad. I can take it. Um, and, uh, so I'll email you the code that you can use. It'll get you access and, um, you can let me know what you think. All right. Sounds great. Well, uh, thanks again, Mark. And uh, I know we can, we can have a couple minutes of chatting once we hop off here. But uh, once again, just thanks so much for, for coming on to chat. Thank you, Kate. All right. And that is all. As always, if you liked what you heard, I'd love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. 
Uh, if you've got a couple extra minutes, a rating or review would also be much appreciated. It doesn't take too long, and it makes a big difference on my end. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com, in addition to fly fishing articles every two weeks. And you can find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. Bye, everyone.